If you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we do is we take a book of the Bible and we begin at the beginning and we begin teaching through as we go. And so today we find ourselves in chapter 19 of this book. And uh, what what, uh, I love about the book of Acts, and I say it every week, is that the book of Acts is the history book of the New Testament. That is, it covers the time period when Jesus is raised from the dead, he goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit is given, the church is birthed, and uh, the main events that take place in the life of the church for the next 35 years. And so we've been traveling through as we go. And so each week I like to begin with a little bit of a timeline there in the top of your outline. Each week we say that Acts chapters 1 and 2 take place in the year 30 A.D. By the time we get to Acts chapter 19, we're going to find that Acts chapter 19 is going to cover a time span of about three years. And that three years is going to take place from about 54 A.D., through 56 AD. And that'll be important as we go. This we'll be looking at today, Paul's ministry there in the city of Ephesus. This will actually take several weeks as we as we go through. But in Acts chapter 20, Paul is going to meet with uh, those who become leaders in this church that we see in Acts chapter 19. And so to the Ephesians, he's going to say there in your outline, therefore be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. So Paul's ministry in this town is going to be about three years. Now it's not exactly three years, it's going to be, you know, about three years. It could not 36 months, could be 34 months, could be 37. But Paul says, you know, about, about three years. I like to begin each week with a map. So Paul goes to the city of Ephesus, but if you go to the the right-hand side of the map, all the way down at the bottom, you have the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is in the southern part of the country of Israel. And so if you go up about 300 miles to what we'd say modern-day Turkey, there is this town of Antioch. Now in Antioch, that would be the first church outside of Israel. It's predominantly Gentile, and it's, it's, it's considered uh, by most to be the first Gentile megachurch. That is, there are thousands of believers, but they don't come from a Jewish background. It would be this church in Antioch that is Paul's home church. It would be the sending church for Paul. Many are surprised to find that as you travel through the story, Paul spends very little time in Israel and in Jerusalem, just, just a few weeks in his entire ministry. But uh, most of his time is up in this church of Antioch, and that will be the church that sends him out on his missionary journeys. So we've traveled through some of those. Uh, we're on the third missionary journey today, and he comes to the city of Ephesus. Now Ephesus, in those days it was called Asia. We would say Turkey today, but it's, it's uh, right there on the coast of Turkey. So that'll be where we pick up today. Now last week we, we looked at this man named Apollos and he comes to the city of Ephesus. And uh, last week we talked about the, the importance of God's word in our life. And what we're going to see is that over the course of the next few weeks, each teaching builds upon the last. So last week Apollos is a man who's mighty in the scriptures, being mighty in the scriptures, uh, doesn't understand everything, connects the dots, and we would say off he goes. And, uh, but, but this teaching builds upon that teaching. That's going to be important for, for us as we go, especially over the course of the next few weeks. When, when I went to seminary, um, when, when you go to seminary, every seminary has its bent, it has its uh, theological perspective. And so wherever you go to seminary, you're going to read theologians. And each seminary has its genre of theologians. 
And so in the genre of seminary, the theologians, the genre of theologians of the seminary that I went to, uh, we would laugh and we would call those theologians, we called them the dead Germans. And that's very common in, in uh, seminary circles. Now uh, it's important to note, in all fairness, they weren't all German, but, but they were in fact all dead. So, so, but we would call them that. Now um, there were certain ones that are said to have made a major impact in the world of theology. So one of those that was very prominent in the seminary that I went to was a guy named Rudolf Bultmann. And I've talked about him here on Sunday morning. Now we are not in any way part of the genre of seminary that I, I went to. We're a very different church. But Rudolf Bultmann's contribution to the theological world was that he held that we needed to demythologize the Gospels in order to get what, to what is really important. So he would say that when you look at things like Jesus walking on the water, raising the dead, feeding the 5,000, that's all mythology. And you don't need to look at that. And you really miss the point of what the Gospel is really all about if you, if you look at that, if you focus in on that. Now, here at, at Calvary, we would never demythologize what we see in the Gospels. So when Jesus walks on the water, we say, Jesus walked on the water. He raised the, you know, he fed the 5,000, he raised the dead. We believe that all the miracles that Jesus performed actually took place. So in our church, we would never demythologize what the Bible says took place. And, um, but here, here's the thing. Um, we would never do that there. But if we're not careful what we might find ourselves doing and the way that we might demythologize the Bible is when it comes to the work of the Holy Spirit and what we see in the New Testament, we're very comfortable with what God did 2,000 years ago as far as the work of the Holy Spirit. But when you come to this time and age and place where we live, many of us become very uncomfortable and so we might demythologize and we might say, well, that's what God did back then. Uh, he doesn't want to do that now. That's for, you know, we, that, that all went away after the first century. It went away when we got our Bible. And we might throw out much of what the Bible says God might want to do in our lives in this generation. So we're going to talk about that today, the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. There's a few things that we need to say as we get into this. First of all, um, nothing's going to change here at Calvary. Each week we're going to show up, we're going to open our Bibles, and we're going to teach the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We've been doing that for 20, almost 23 years. We're going to continue doing that as we go. Uh, another thing that it's important to say is that what we're going to talk about today is something that has a way of dividing denominations. Uh, people write books about, people get their PhDs in this, and so I realize that I'm only going to be able to scratch the surface uh, of a much deeper conversation. And so I realize that. So as we're traveling through, you might go, well, what about this? What about that? Well, there's probably going to be a lot of what about this and what about that because we only have so many minutes today. So we're just going to look at what the Bible says and maybe draw some applications from that to see what God might want to say to us. Make sense so far? So we're going to pick it up in Acts chapter 19 in verse one, and I'm going to read the first three verses. And uh, it says, and it happened while Paul, well, that while Apollos was at Corinth, we talked about that last week, Paul passed through the upper country and he came to Ephesus, and I've underlined that, and he found some disciples, and I've underlined that. 
And he said to them, you know, he's, he's there with them for a period of time and, and then at a certain period of time, we don't know how long it is, it probably wasn't the first 10 minutes, maybe it was a couple of days, maybe it was a few hours, we don't know. But it says, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, no, we've not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, In, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So here Paul, as he comes to this town of Ephesus, and he's going to be there for three years, he encounters these disciples and something's going on and it causes him to say, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now the big question is, uh, many people ask, and and, uh, there are different opinions, but some would say they are not believers at this point and others would say they are believers. And uh, so when you read certain, certain, uh, certain theologians, for instance, one of the guys who's probably considered the, the greatest Bible scholar of the last hundred years is a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. And he comments on this, and I'll just read what he says. He says, when the men are called disciples without further qualification, that seems to mean that they are disciples of Jesus. Had Luke meant to indicate that they were disciples of John the Baptist, he would have said so explicitly. And that's true. In, in the New Testament, uh, 100% of the time when somebody's called a disciple it always means that they're a disciple of Jesus. Unless it tells you specifically that they're a disciple of somebody else, a disciple of John or something like that, John the Baptist. So I would hold, and this isn't something that we have to agree on, but I would hold that these are disciples of Jesus, but they have some real gaping holes in their understanding as to how all of this works out. So I, I want you to go ahead and write this down. Paul meets some disciples, but he doesn't question whether they believe, but he recognizes that something's missing. Something's missing in their lives. And uh, again, I would be okay if we disagreed, at least at this part. But there was apparently something about these men that as Paul's getting to know them, he doesn't question whether they believe, but there's something missing in, 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 their, in, their, uh, in, in their lives, we'd say. And another thing that we notice is that when you travel through the book of Acts, Paul doesn't go around asking people, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? This is you know, an isolated case. So Paul meets these guys, they're disciples, they're committed followers, but something's missing. So we would hold, and you want to write this down, uh, tell me if this is a, on your outline, but they know enough to be saved, but not about the Holy Spirit. Is that on your outline? Okay, so you want to write that down. So we would hold they had a basic understanding about Jesus and his ministry, but they were baptized by John, we'd say John the Baptist, and, and so their understanding of Jesus came from their encounters with John the Baptist. So they believe, but they just don't have all of the information at this point. They're very much like Apollos who we found last week. Apollos was teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, but there were some gaping holes in his understanding. We didn't question last week whether or not he was a believer, he was speaking accurately, but, but there were some things that he needed to understand. And you'll recall the story, Priscilla and Aquila take him aside, they explain some things, he connects the dots and, and off he goes. Interesting also is that last week Apollos, although he's teaching accurately the things of Jesus, he's not called a disciple. These men are called disciples. And so it seems to indicate that they're disciples of Jesus, but there's some missing gaps in their understanding. So when Paul asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? 
it implies, and, and I want you to write this down, it implies that we can know when we receive the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure if that's on your outline, outline or not. Um, but he asked that question because apparently that's something that you know when, when you receive. It was back in the 1800s when a man named Charles Spurgeon, he's commenting on this, and he says it's sort of like this. If you've been shocked with lightning, you know it. Or if you've been shocked with electricity, you know it. You know when it happened, how it happened, you know how you felt, nobody questions it. You, you know that it happens. It's sort of the same way. So they say in verse 3, they said, into what ba-, or Paul says, into what bapt- were you baptized? And they said into John's baptism. So Paul gives a little bit more clarification. He says, Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. So they realize that we need to be baptized in in the name of Jesus. So verse 5, they respond, and I'll read 5 through 7, it says, when they heard this, they were baptized. You want to underline that. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands upon them, this is after they're baptized, the Holy Spirit came on them, I've underlined that, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying, And then in verse 7 it says, and they were in all about 12 men. This is about 12 men and and they are disciples and so this happens. So a few things. First of all, they hear the rest of the story. They apparently embrace that. We don't question whether they were saved beforehand, but now they understand and so they are then baptized. Now that's important for us because they are baptized after they understand. In the Bible, 100% of the time, people are baptized when they understand the gospel and they receive it. I know many of us come from a background where we were baptized as babies. But in the Bible, it's always after somebody believes that their response is to follow the Lord in baptism. So we're not hostile to that, but just know that in the Bible, it's always after somebody believes that's when they are baptized. Another thing that we see in this is that in verse 6 it says, now when Paul, they were baptized in verse six, 5, then verse 6 it says, and when Paul laid his hands on them after they were baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. One of the things that we notice is that after they were baptized, Paul then lays his hands on them and when he lays his hands upon them, it says the Holy Spirit comes upon them and there is a manifestation there in this, in this circumstance, this case, that they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. I do not believe that, that that is the manifestation in every time somebody receives that. But here that's what took place. So verse 6 implies, because they're baptized in verse 5 and then in verse 6 then Paul lays his hands on them and they receive this, verse 6 there in your outline implies that someone can believe and receive the Holy Spirit later. Now I would say receive the Holy Spirit in the sense of an empowering. And we'll talk about that as we go. So Paul asked them there in your outline, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And again, Paul did not question whether or not they believed. His question is, did you receive the Holy Spirit, realizing that there's something missing in their lives? Now this is important because some will say, when you're saved, you get it all right then. Everything that God's going to do happens right then. And um, you know, there's no work of the Spirit after you get saved. There's just growing in discipleship. And so, but it all happens right then. And, and they'll point to certain 
stories in the Bible. For instance, you'll recall we were in Acts chapter 10 and Peter is called to go to Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile, he's a Roman centurion. Peter goes to his house and Peter begins to give the gospel. And one of the things that we saw when we were there in Acts chapter 10, speaking to all of these Gentiles, and it says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came upon all who heard the message, and the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues. And what, what hit us there is that it all happened at one time. They're, there's, they're, they're, they're saved and, and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they weren't even baptized. They weren't even baptized in water. But everything just kind of happens right there. Then certainly they went out and they were baptized. But at that point they received the Holy Spirit before that actually took place. So we see that. However, that's not the case in all the stories of the Bible. So for instance in Acts chapter 8, you'll recall the story that persecution comes upon the church in Jerusalem and so everybody runs for their lives and they head out to different places. And Philip, who's called Philip the Evangelist, he goes to the area of Samaria, which if you're a Jewish guy running from the Jewish leadership there in Jerusalem, the best place to go is Samaria because that's where the Samaritans live. And you know that they're not going to come there because they don't want to be touched by a Samaritan. So very wisely he goes there. And while he's there, he begins to give the gospel. And one of the things that we notice as we traveled through there in your outline, it says, uh, Philip goes to Samaria, people are getting saved. And it says, now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem, now guys, this is like 50, 60, 70 miles away. Information did not travel like it does today. This was weeks, possibly months later. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And they did. They received the Holy Spirit. They believed, and then later on they received the Holy Spirit. And there was a considerable amount of time between the two events. So when this happened in our story today, they received the Holy Spirit. We notice that in verse 6 it says that when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. The, the word tongues in, in the original language is the word glossa, and it just means languages. Languages. Uh, when it refers to this, it means speaking in a language that you didn't grow up speaking, that you didn't learn. It's a supernatural empowering, we would say. And one of the things that we notice when, when they do this, and throughout the New Testament, very important, you want to write this down, that tongues is always speaking to God. It's always speaking to God. Paul would say it like this, for he who speaks in a tongue, and you want to underline, does not speak to men. Does not speak to men, but to God. Now that, that's very important, because if you're like me, and you've been around the church block, and you'll be in different environments, and there will be a time where somebody will stand up, and uh, they'll speak in tongues in a, in a church service or something like that. And uh, it's not uncommon for somebody to stand up and say, well, here's the interpretation. And the interpretation that they give is always a message from God. And it'll be like, little children, here's what the Lord is saying, thus saith the Lord, and they, they give that. But the Bible says that tongues is not a message from God. Tongues is always man speaking to God. That's very important. So when you hear that, you, you know. Even on the day of Pentecost, when the apostles began to very publicly speak in tongues, they didn't give a message. They didn't give a teaching. Uh, notice how uh, the crowd responded to what they said. 
there in your outline, they would say, as the apostles did this in Acts chapter 2, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They weren't giving a message, they were just talking about how great God is in the language that people understood who were there, who were in from out of town. But it was never, it's never a message from God. Also interesting, here in verse 7 it says there were in all about 12 men. What you see is this speaking in tongues took place in an environment where there were only believers. There were no non-believers in that environment, there were just believers. So this was just an environment where there were some believers, but it was not a church service where there would be believers and non-believers. Many people today will reject the supernatural work of God we're okay with the supernatural work of God as long as it's 2,000 years ago. Um, but if God were to want to do something now supernaturally, it would make many people very uncomfortable. So, so this takes place 2,000 years ago. And uh, again, many people would be very uncomfortable with that today. Now, so they began speaking in tongues, but then it says they also began to prophesy. Now, prophecy in the Bible, in the New Testament at least, is more the foretelling, the heart of God, more than the foretelling, more than foretelling. It's, it's giving God's heart to God's people more than we tend to think of prophecy as telling the future. Can it be? Yes. But primarily it's more foretelling the heart of God. So Paul would say it like this. And, and by, by the way, write this down. Prophecy is speaking to men. That'll be important. So Paul would say it like this, but everyone who prophesies speaks to men. This is very different than speaking in tongues. Speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. So, so it can be telling the future, but Paul says that it's, it's really the strengthening and giving comfort. So if I stand up here today and I teach something and it causes you to become strong in your faith, to be encouraged in your faith, that's what Paul would say New Testament prophecy is primarily about. Can it be telling the future? Yeah, I'm sure that it can, but primarily it's, it's foretelling the heart of God. Well, those are the, the first seven verses uh, of this chapter. And I thought that we would take a few moments and just explore it a little bit more, just to share some perspective and maybe uh, give you an idea of, of how we understand how this works. Have I put you to sleep yet? Good. So for the three of you who are awake, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna go forward. All right. So it's a little bit of perspective. You will remember that Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. He's put into the grave. The, the tomb is sealed. And three days later, he's raised from the dead. In order for you and I to be saved, Jesus had to die on the cross and he had to pay the price for everything we ever did. And the part of the gospel is that either he pays the full price or we pay, which is why you, you want to make sure that you have received the free gift that he has for you. So on the day that Jesus is raised from the dead, the disciples are gathered in this, in this room, upper room, and the doors are sealed and they're, they're terrified. You know, what, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus has been raised from the dead. And you'll recall this story. He appears in the midst of them. And there's some conversation that takes place. But at a certain point in the conversation, Jesus looks to his disciples and there in the outline he says, he says, when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. 
receive the Holy Spirit. It would be at this point, and you want to write this down, at this point we would hold that they are saved. You see, the apostles, disciples, like us, they had to have Jesus die on the cross and pay the price for their sins in order for them to be saved. So at this point, he's died on the cross, he's been raised from the dead, and they are now saved. And because they are saved, he's able to say, receive the Holy Spirit. So I'm of the opinion that when Jesus says, receive the Holy Spirit, that you receive the Holy Spirit. So we would hold that they received the Holy Spirit. But they received the Holy Spirit in such a way that the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, enters them, but there's not much of a change. You don't really see a change in them at this point, but, but they're saved. They're saved. And so in that sense, the, the Holy Spirit is inside of them. So the day that he's raised from the dead, he's resurrected, he appears to them, he says, receive the Holy Spirit, they receive. They're saved. But you want to write this down approximately 40 days later, 40 days later, to the disciples who had received the Holy Spirit, Jesus promised that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So they've already received the Holy Spirit, but then he says, now you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. There in your outline in Acts chapter 1, Jesus is speaking. He says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And uh, it'll be eight more days. And then a few verses down, he gives a little bit more information on this. And he says, you will receive power. And that, I love that word dunamis there for the word power. Dunamis is the, the word that we get the English word dynamite. Absolutely. So it's ex- explosive power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now what's important in that is that he's defined for them, when you receive the Holy Spirit, this this is how, when you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, this is how it will manifest in your life. And I put it there in your outline. The purpose is to have power to be his witness. It's the power to be his witness. Now it's important to know, it's not power to go witnessing. It's a power to be a witness. Now, what that means is that somebody will be able to look on your life and they recognize that there's something different about you, that God is using you in a unique way, and you're now able to live out God's purpose in your life. He's using you in a specific way, not power to go witnessing. Now, if you come from my church background, that's a thank you Jesus moment because growing up, it was like Tuesday night, you go to church, you have the spaghetti dinner, and then you go to everybody's house who visited your church. They don't want you to go there, but you're going to go there and you're going to witness to them. Am I the only person who's had this experience? Who here's had this experience? Okay, so, so this is a thank you Jesus moment. Uh, so, so it's not to go witnessing, but it's, it's to be empowered to be a witness. People look on at your life. And it's also important to know, a power to be a witness. It's not in the definition of what it looks like. It's not so that we have spiritual goosebumps, we get together, we feel good, we fall down, we roll around. That's not part, that's not what it means. Now, I'm, I'm not hostile to... To the, um, but I'm just saying that this is an empowering to be a witness who it is that God's called you to be. So far, so good? 
So here's what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you are now sin-free. It doesn't mean that you are perfect you know, in your whole life. It doesn't mean that your spouse is no longer cranky. It doesn't mean that you're, you, know, it's just, you have bills to pay, you've got a job, you know, life goes on. But what you notice is as you go, God is empowering you in a unique way. That, and, and people look on and they, they see that. So it's an empowering to be a witness. Now on the day of Pentecost, now that was the day in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given, the apostles stand up and they begin speaking with tongues. They don't understand, but the people who are in town, they do understand. And the people who are in town, some of them begin to mock and they begin to make fun of what's going on. And so it's Peter who stands up. And Peter, as he stands up, he gives some clarification as to what's going on, why this is happening, and here's what this means. So Peter stands up, and and notice what he says. I put it there in your outline. Peter says to, to these, and these are all people who believe their Bible, he says, but this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days. Well, I love that because Peter tells them that in that time period when this happened, as this begins, they're in the last days then. Would you agree that we're in the last days now? If they were in the last days then, we're in the last of the last, 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 last. I mean, I don't know we got till lunchtime, kind of last days type thing. So we're, we're close, we're close. So this will, ha- what will be happening in the last days. Says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. He said, this is, this is what you're saying. You're seeing the beginning of this and this will take place in the last days. But then he continues as they look on what has just taken place and he continues and there on your outline he says, for the promise is to you and I've underlined to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. When he says it's to you and your children, he's speaking generationally. It's to you, your children, and to those who are far off. If he were to say it's to you and the people in Samaria and the people in Turkey, we would say, all right, you're speaking geographically. But he says it's to you your children, that next generation, and then to those who are far off. We are 2,000 years away. It's, it's to us. We are a far off. So go ahead and write this down. The promise of the Holy Spirit is for every generation. It's for every generation. So here, here's what this means as Peter explains it. And you want to write this down. Whatever the Holy Spirit was doing then, he's doing now. Whatever the Holy Spirit's doing then, he's doing now. So, so here, here's why this is so important. Paul goes to a town and he sees some people who are disciples. They love Jesus, but something's missing in their life. There, there's a lack of power in their life. And so he asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And of course they, they don't, didn't even know. They didn't know. And so they receive and then everything changes. So, so here's what I'd want to say uh, about that. We believe, as we read the Bible, that what God was doing then, 2,000 years ago, he's still doing today. That hasn't changed. It says, to those who are far off and as many who are called by God. Are you called by God? Well, then you're part of that. 
And uh, that, didn't, that didn't end. Some people will say, well, that was just for the first generation. It's very hard to find that verse. Uh, some would say, it's till we got our first Bible. That's another verse very hard to find. But he says, to those who are far off and as many who, is, who are called, that's, that's us. That's us. We believe that there is a God. We believe that Jesus is God. He came to the earth. He died on the cross for our sins. And he gave the Holy Spirit. But there's another entity. We know him as Satan. And just as the Bible speaks about God, there's definitely a Satan. Satan will always come in and try to distort or destroy whatever it is that God wants to do. And we've seen that. Everywhere that Paul goes, there's this distortion. Whenever Satan can get in, he does that. I'm going to suggest that the way that Satan takes what God says about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and distorts it, on the one hand, uh, some people say, I believe in that it's for today. But what you see looks nothing like what you see in the Bible. It's not an empowering to be a witness. It's more the get-together, feel-good, roll, roll around the floor, that, that sort of thing. I, I don't see that in the Bible. It doesn't mean it's not true, but because some take it and they're very weird about it and there's not an empowering to be a witness, there's just lots of activity that can at times look very strange. So I think Satan has a way of distorting what God wants to do in a way that becomes, we would say, kind of, kind of on the weird side. Then on the other side, Satan has a way of having those who come from a, a lot of our background, and we look over there and we say, that's weird, and I don't want anything to do with that. And so we start to hear things like, well, that was just for the first century, it's just for, you know, until we got our Bible and, and things like that. And so we miss out. And so if there's something to this empowering to be a witness, and Satan can make it weird or cause the other side of the church to say, we don't want nothing to do with this, then who wins? Who wins? Well, he will always try to distort what it is that God is doing. Uh, you've heard the story. I've told it before. It never stops me from telling it again. But this church that I was in before Calvary, we were so, we don't want anything of the Holy Spirit in this church that one day we were singing songs, and that was a hymns church. You know, piano one side, organ on the other, singing hymn. And a lady raised her hand, and the pastor stood up, and uh, he said, he stopped the whole service and says, ma'am, we don't do that here. Talk about an awkward church moment. We did not want anything to get out of hand, so we stopped everything. Well, both sides, both sides lose. Uh, both groups lose. So I, I would say, I believe that the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is for today. It's something that God wants to use in your life to empower you to accomplish what it is that God wants to do in your life. For me, when, when you operate in the power of the Holy Spirit, you know that God has used you. There is nothing more gratifying, satisfying. Uh, there's a sense of, I, I don't even know the right words, accomplishment, whatever you want to say. But you, you, there's, just, there's no greater joy than knowing that God has used you. So for me in my life, the way that it, it's worked out is that somehow God uses when I teach this book, he, I, I come alive when I do that. There's this great sense of accomplishment. There's a joy to it. I can't wait to get here. And it's just, you know, and you show up, that's always a, a, a help. But I love this. I love this. But many of you have experienced, when you talk to me outside of this, after about 10 minutes, you're like, this guy's a moron. You know, because I'm, I'm empowered here. So don't ask me about this and this and this. This is where God empowers me. 
for my wife. She's empowered as a teacher, but she has this incredible gift of evangelism. I know I've told you stories and they happen all the time. You know, one time we're in a restaurant and she, she says, I feel like the Lord's calling me to go across the restaurant. There's a lady sitting at a table by herself and I, I just want to go and I just feel like the Lord's calling me up. So she goes over there. I'm talking with our friends. Five minutes later, I look over there. She's holding hands with the lady. They're both crying. They're praying together. I'm like, that never happens for me, but it's very natural for her. One time we go, one time we, we went to the food court and uh, she goes up to order fries. She comes back two minutes later. You've heard the story. She comes back and says, yeah, I met someone. So she's behind the counter. She moved here from over there. She's living with her boyfriend. She feels like she's really in sin. She knows she needs to repent. She's been away from church. I'm like, how does that happen to you? I go up, I go, I'd like fries. They go, that'll be a dollar. Here it is. <laughs> Thank you. I go, but everywhere she goes, one time we're in Walmart and we're going through the line. I can tell you many, many stories. One time we're going through the line and uh, we're at the cash register there. And the lady behind the register says, well, God bless you. And Cheryl says, well, he has. And all of a sudden I realize, I want to turn to all the people who are behind me and say, you know what? You want to go over to the next line. We're going to be here a while. But, but it's not something that she manufactures. It just comes out. It just comes out. And that's the empowering of the Holy Spirit. I'm evangelistic, but she's gifted in evangelism. She walks into a place and people just want to tell her their life story. I, that can only be the Holy Spirit. If you believe in the empowering of the Holy Spirit for today, as we as a church do, but you were to look at your life and say, I really want that, but I don't know that I've ever experienced that. We, we have four services, we, we have one hour, so I can't say, well, come forward, we're, we're going to lay hands on you and pray that you receive the Holy Spirit. But if you want that, here's what we, we're doing today. Outside the breezeway, Pastor Ken is going to be on the east side, just kind of to the left as you go outside. And if you want somebody to lay hands on you and pray for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, He'd love to do that. We'd love to see that happen. Here's what I can tell you. I, I don't think you're going to fall down. I, I don't think anything weird is going to happen. What I think you're going to see as you walk away, you're going to begin to see God use you in ways that you've never seen before. One of my friends, they prayed over him. He says, I received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He said, nothing happened, nothing happened at all. But then I'm, I'm going out and somebody says something and I, I said something back. And all of a sudden I just began sharing the Lord with them and it's never happened before. And they got saved on the street. And it just began to happen and happen and happen in his life. And he realized he didn't feel any different, but he just saw that God began to use him in a unique way. I believe that what God was doing 2,000 years ago, he wants to do today. If you want that, after the service to the east side, Pastor Ken is going to be there praying for people to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There were like 30 people in the first service, 30 people in the second service. And if you want that, he'll, he'll be out there today. Did you find that interesting today? Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want everything that you have for us. We want nothing that is not from you. We want to know you in the truth of your word and your spirit. And so we look to your word to define for us what that truth is. And we want to be empowered by your Holy Spirit to be that witness for you that people can look on and say there's something very special there. We want to experience you using us 
in a way that we can say it could only be God. And we know, Lord, you want to give that to us. Father, I thank you for this congregation. I pray you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.